I'm Tim Gombas, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about things that interest me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me, if you like, at faithimprovised at gmail.com, or leave a voice message at the podcast homepage on anchor.fm. In this episode, I reflect a bit on the previous conversation about the Great Commission. I talk about a great book on the mystifying devotion of white evangelicals to the current president, and I have a conversation with my friend Steve Watkins about a load of things, but especially violence in our world and alpha males. But first, I want to reflect a little bit on the conversation that I enjoyed last week with Kristen Johnson, who's doing some very interesting research into the history of the Great Commission. It's just mind-blowing um, that the focus on Matthew 28, Jesus's closing words to his disciples, um, that the focus on that passage and making it so central is such a recent phenomenon. Uh, the church did not think this way for 1900 years, and only in the late uh, 19th century did uh, the Great Commission become sort of a prominent uh, feature in American Christianity, and then uh, the way that American evangelicalism developed, uh, the Great Commission has become so central, um, driving uh, evangelistic thrusts and basically um, shaping the way that we think about so very many things. Um, so a couple thoughts on that. This is one of the reasons uh, why I think it is so important to study history. Um, many of us know that when we study the Bible, it's very important to understand the historical context of passages that we're studying, whether Old Testament or New Testament. But we don't often think uh, about studying and understanding our own situation, our own historical situation. The reality is that we think the way we think because of historical forces and cultural dynamics. And I have come to see that certainly in my inherited evangelical culture, we do not know ourselves very well. We don't understand um, the historical forces that have shaped us. We don't understand um, the cultural conflicts that make us think the way that we think. Um, and this is why um, I have made it an aim over the last 25 years or so to read anything and everything I can get my hands on about evangelical culture and the history of evangelicalism, uh, because I want to know myself. I want to know, um, you know, how do traditions develop? Why do we, why do we think the way that we think is the way that we think biblical? Does it match up with scripture? Are our thought forms and um, is the grammar of sort of how we think about the gospel and how we think about being Christian, does it match the grammar, the deep logic of scripture? And this is why I will often make critical observations about my inherited evangelical culture, uh, not because I'm uh, a self-hating Christian or something like that, um, or that I'm resentful about my heritage. I just want to have my eyes open um, when I think about being Christian and when I um, go about being Christian in this world, I want to know why I am approaching things the way that I'm approaching them. Um, where is hope? Where? Uh, what should we be fearing? Uh, what should we be hoping in? Who should we see as good, as bad, as dangerous, as threatening? Um, all these things are sort of handed down to us through a culture, and uh, we can end up having hopes. We can end up having fears. Um, that come from elsewhere other than Scripture. Um, and this is just 
a further instance of that. Understanding the history of an idea is helpful to sort of go back to scripture and uh, read it with our eyes open. Um, I have long thought that the Great Commission has played an unhealthy uh, role in evangelical thinking and that that's not good. Um, or perhaps, I mean, we could also say that we actually haven't uh, read that passage particularly well. We haven't read it alongside the rest of Matthew and the rest of the New Testament. Um, it is not a commission to evangelize, but it's a call for the church to make disciples, um, that is, learners, people who learn over a lifetime how to inhabit the life of the kingdom of God in all of its particulars as a community. So um, Jesus talks about baptizing uh, disciples and then teaching them uh, to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. And uh, as I look around, certainly my town, we have a number of churches filled with people who apparently have signed up to be disciples, but are largely untaught. Um, so in one sense, as I see it, the evangelism part is done, uh, but now it's time to teach and to learn together what it looks like to actually be the kingdom of God on earth. So the church's mission, uh, shockingly as it is, you know, to hear it, um, certainly to evangelical ears, the, the church's mission is not to evangelize. Uh, it is to enact and embody the kingdom of God on earth. We are called to be an alternative socio-political and economic body of people who inhabit and live out God's restorative justice through social practices of self-giving love, forgiveness, reconciliation, service to one another and to the world, and learning all of the rich practices of hospitality to societies marginalized and to the poor. That is the focus of the life of the church. We are not called to evangelize. In fact, um, it's interesting in the one place where Paul actually talks about the church's pro uh, proclamation of the Lord's death in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that this happens through the church's hospitable practice of the Lord's meal. So when the church gathers as a multi-ethnic, intergenerational body of people that crosses social classes, and when they gather for a common meal called the Lord's meal, um, and depict and physically enact their social solidarity as this new unit of people, not gathered by ethnicity, not gathered by social class, um, when they gather and when they are hospitable to one another and when they enact that social solidarity, that is the proclamation of the Lord's death until he comes. So nowhere does Paul tell the church to proclaim the gospel, but when they uh, inhabit that reality, when they practice um, the Lord's meal, they do proclaim the Lord's death because it was the Lord's death that created the social entity called the church. Uh, which is the social embodiment of God's justice. I'm coming to see this more and more in uh, in Romans and in 2 Corinthians 5, um, that uh, the church is God's justice, God's public justice. God sets forth the people gathered in the name of Jesus as his justice. Um, we miss this because of uh, the way that we translate the term uh, dikaiosune, in the, new, in the Greek word in English as righteousness. And we sort of misunderstand the, the character of righteousness, but 
God's righteousness is God's justice, his making everything right, his making everything new. And um, the public gathering of the people of God is supposed to be the enactment um, of God's justice. That's what God's righteousness looks like. That's what God's justice looks like. This new social body of people living this radically alternative way of life. That is uh, the way of life called the truth. Um, when I have these discussions uh, with students, I often get asked, uh, well, if we're not called to evangelize, then how else are people going to hear? Um, again, people will hear when when we you know, physically embody the proclamation of the Lord's death through the practice of hospitality toward one another and toward outsiders. Um, that's, according to Paul's logic, that's how it works. And I want to um, critically sit with that question um, because I feel that, that those kinds of questions, the how else, uh, unless we do it this way, how else will it happen? That question needs to be critically examined um, because in Scripture, God often asks His people to do things that don't seem like they're going to lead to a desired result. Um, I just think of Jericho. Um, how's it going to work to destroy the city uh, by marching around it? Uh, I think about Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, you know, Elijah went about things in a pretty wild way. Or uh, Gideon. That episode um, in Judges, uh, these are just sort of a smattering of examples, but um, we need to recognize, uh, certainly um, in my context as an American evangelical, in an American evangelical context, uh, there are values that run through this culture like efficiency or effectiveness uh, or usefulness, um, you know, practicality. These are sort of all-American values that have overwhelmed um, the way that the church imagines how to be the church. We, we, we know that there's a certain result that we want to bring about, um, and we want to find the most efficient way of doing it or the most effective way of doing it. But that might not be what God has called us to do. And in the case of being the people of God on earth, being the church, uh, there's nowhere in the New Testament where... Um, the church is commissioned to be an agency of evangelism. The church is the agency of God's justice, uh, which is a scandal that Paul has to explain in uh, the book of Romans. Um, but the gospel creates the church, and the church is to be the kingdom of God in all of its um, radical, uh, socially alternative practice of God's public justice. And um, if there's anything that the Great Commission, I, I got to stop calling it that. If there's anything that Matthew 28 is meant to communicate to the church, it is for us to learn the practices and the, um, the ways of life as communities um, that look like and embody the kingdom of God. And that will take a lifetime. It will take generations. And the whole process of learning all of that is life-giving and joy-generating. It's not, uh, you know, it's not an obligation. It's not something we do out of uh, duty. Um, these practices themselves generate life. Um, Kristen 
uh, also mentioned that um, uh, conservative evangelicals in the earlier part of the 20th century uh, so focused on evangelism and noticed that the people that had held to sort of higher critical theories um, about the origins of the Bible um, that conservative evangelicals came to call liberal, I mean, really the origins of conservative and liberal date back to the early part of the 20th century. Um, but conservative evangelicals noted that, um, you know, more liberal Christians or people they regarded as liberal were involved in social reform and doing good in urban centers and uh, relieving uh, social ills and um, basically started a long tradition of demonizing uh, social action in the world. And we see that same legacy happening today uh, where the social um, social renewal or social, social justice is uh, regarded with antipathy, which is a, an absolute tragedy. Um, I've, I've faced this on many occasions um, where I've been involved in, uh, in efforts at social renewal or social reform or social activism and have had conservative evangelical people um, you know, question that or regard that as somehow the social gospel and a threat and dangerous. But these are the kinds of things that Jesus calls us to do. And if we regard the way of life to which he calls us as dangerous, that is simply highly problematic. Um, this is, like I said, this is what the language of righteousness and justification in the New Testament is all about, that God creates this people that are just, that are righteous, and that embody God's social justice, God's social justice. Uh, Kristen also mentioned... Um, the development of parachurch organizations uh, where uh, many Christians felt that the church was not um, accomplishing possible goals, um, either evangelism or, or um, whatever else uh, was seen to be important. And um, she sort of traces uh, the impetus behind the Great Commission to the rise of parachurch organizations, which I find fascinating. And uh, it seems to me that parachurch organizations are uh, quintessentially American, where we imagine that the church is this inefficient uh, body, uh, incapable of uh, producing desired outcomes. And so we form organizations uh, to produce those outcomes because the church can't do it. Um, and that, to me, is a real tragedy because it demonstrates a loss of faith and hope in the church. Indeed, the church is not an effective body. It's not an efficient body. It's God's new family. And um, yeah, these, these values that uh, so pervade our evangelical culture of effectiveness and production of outcomes, um, I think has led, led us to sort of um, devalue the church in what it actually offers. It offers something that is so completely different from the world. It's not going to be producing uh, anything impressive. It is the gathering of God's new family. And families are not necessarily meant to produce anything. They are fellowships where our deepest human needs are, are met and where we encounter God by encountering uh, one another and by being involved um, as social bodies 
called churches uh, in seeking the good and the blessing of the world. And um, that will often be inefficient, that will often be ineffective, um, but even those efforts produce further Christian behaviors like praying, um, like lamenting the character of the world, the state of the world, like having solidarity with those who suffer. Uh, many problems um, seem in, insurmountable, and we face massive obstacles, but when we do it as some other body than the church, uh, we are engaging in something other than and less than Christian conduct. And my last thought was simply, uh, once again, how um, uh, Great Commission thinking really uh, grew from and then served to reinforce uh, an individualistic gospel that prevents us from seeing uh, structural and institutional realities. And uh, so many of the problems in our world um, go back to systemic and structural uh, realities of um, varieties of oppression and division in our culture. And when we simply uh, focus on saving souls or um, getting this person saved or reaching out to the lost, um, we, we forget that uh, Paul's gospel and Jesus's gospel um, are about this larger reality called the kingdom of God, uh, which invades this broken creation and um, forms a body of people who discern the way that structural and systemic realities orient our culture and pervert it. And we form a mode of life that uh, resists conforming to those structural and systemic realities. So it's important that we pay very close attention to those um, because they define our world, they shape our world, and because we're blind to them, they actually shape our evangelical churches and institutions in in um, highly inappropriate ways. Anyway, if you've not listened to it yet, check out uh, my discussion um, in episode six, I believe, uh, on the Great Commission, um, a discussion with Kristen Johnson. I was fascinated by it, and um, I think you will be too. I want to tell you about a book. The author is Sarah Posner, and the book is called Unholy, subtitle, Why White Evangelicals Worship at the Altar of Donald Trump, and it's published by Random House. just came out this year. Sarah Posner is a journalist. Uh, she has a law degree from the University of Virginia, and she researched this book like a dogged lawyer. My goodness, it is so well researched. Um, and she goes at the conundrum that many people have uh, noted over the last four years since the last election. Um, the mystery of why so many white evangelicals would support someone like Donald Trump, who has lived his entire life in defiance of anything and everything Christian, someone who mocks Christian practices and is dismissive of a Christian way of life. Well, people who have been paying attention for some time and know uh, the history of the movement are not terribly surprised. Um, but Posner tells the story so well, and she brings together all of the elements that have been building over the last 50 years um, to bring us to this current moment. She does a deep dive into the historical underpinnings of the modern religious right and its mobilization as a political force in America. And she has a lot to say about Paul Weyrich, probably a little known name to most of us. Um, but he's one of the architects of the religious right, someone who was part of the purposeful um, mobilization 
of conservative white Christians since the early 1970s. And she reveals the long-term quest for power and control over the course of America's future uh, on the part of white evangelicals. She has lots to say about the really twisted vision of how white evangelicals see the progress of civil rights for minorities and marginalized groups as a loss for them. Um, and this flies under the rhetoric of the president's uh, apparent championing of um, religious freedom and, um, you know, for Christians and this and that. Um, that rhetoric basically masks uh, the sense that um, rights for LGBTQ plus folks rights for minorities are in some ways a loss for white evangelicals, which is a really twisted way of thinking. But that way of thinking has been purposely injected into white evangelical culture um, by some strong voices over the last 50 years. And there are reasons why we think the way that we think. Well, that whole sense is one of the sources of deep cultural resentment that shapes white evangelicalism today. And it's one of the reasons why they so strongly uh, resonate with the president. Basically, he's a deeply resentful person. And evangelicals have been told for decades that they're being pushed around or taken for granted or persecuted in some way or that their voice isn't being represented. Um, now, all these are illusions, uh, of course, but they predominate in white evangelical culture. The resentment runs deep resentment against cultural elites or the media or whoever. That's a massive problem from a Christian theological perspective because uh, Christians are supposed to be people who love their enemies, um, who are always involved in a process of turning enemies into friends. But for evangelicals, because of evangelical spokespeople and the way that the culture has been created, um, it has been a, a culture that has cultivated enemies. And that's problematic from my perspective. Um, because evangelicals so blindly support the president, they fail to notice the abuses of power by this administration and the fact that the president is driving the country toward autocracy and fascism. And Posner um, connects those dots in, in some ways that are actually startling. Um, it's an arresting reality that the two main groups that resonate most strongly with the current president are white evangelicals and militant white supremacists. I would think that this would wake us up to the fact that there's something profoundly wrong with the culture of white evangelicalism, if that is the case. Um, but again, as uh, we talked about previously, I'm not sure that the culture is up for the self-reflection um, that is necessary. Uh, Posner covers so many bases, really the rise of the religious right as a political movement. Um, she exposes the origin myth of the religious right, that in the early 1970s, the religious right came together as a political force to combat abortion. Um, that was a later development. Really, uh, the religious right came together to defend the rights of uh, private schools that were founded um, because uh, many Christian people, especially in the South, um, did not like it that schools were being desegregated. Um, so just there, uh, white supremacy has been wrapped up into uh, the culture of evangelicalism in a highly problematic way. Well, she hits so many other uh, aspects of 
the history that has led us to these last five years and to this current cultural moment. And if you are concerned about the character of evangelical culture in America, um, and if you're concerned to discern um, how that culture corrupts genuine Christian discipleship, you will very much enjoy this book. It's Sarah Posner. Uh, the title is called Unholy. Get it like I did at an independent bookstore. I've mentioned previously that I learned through good conversation, and Steve Watkins has been one of my most important and long-standing conversation partners. We met in seminary almost 25 years ago, and our thinking on so many things has developed along similar lines. Steve has lived the craziest life imaginable. He was a Navy SEAL before he went to college and then seminary. He's been a pastor, and he earned a PhD in humanities at the University of Louisville. He now lives on a farm in Kentucky and teaches religion and history at Northern Kentucky University and the University of Louisville. He's my best friend, and our ongoing conversations cover every topic under the sun, golf, baseball, theology, culture, relationships, whatever. Recently, he's turned his attention to reflecting on violence and pacifism. So we talked about some of those things the other day, and I'm happy to share this conversation. Hey, I was going to ask you, uh, how'd the farm do this, uh, this summer? Oh, it did great. Well, amazing tomatoes and uh, just really, uh, we've had a lot of rain, so it was just going gangbusters. Oh, yeah, that's awesome for tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah's are going wild. I mean, she, we got a sink full of tomatoes right now, and yeah, we're gonna be chowing on salsa and uh, pasta sauce. There's nothing like it. Man, oh man! Best. Hey, how did your uh, how'd your bees do? My what? Your oh, bees! Bees, they're doing really well. Um, I haven't been extracting honey from them because I'm using them mostly as pollinators for my trees and wildflowers and uh, the garden. And the bees are really struggling because of this colony collapse stuff. So I just, I, I don't want to stress them by taking the honey that they need to survive the winter. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they're dying all over the place. I've talked to some experts uh, in bees and even the most knowledgeable people are having, they're, they're losing colonies. It's it, part of its uh, monoculture farming and pesticides uh, and the elimination of, of wildflower habitats that bloom all all summer long rather than just corn and soybeans that bloom only at one time so it's it's kind of complicated but yeah yeah it's complicated i mean like the whole system holds together so i mean you start monkeying with it right and that's what happens but that's just so interesting that uh like bee colony collapse like more widely affects even like your bees yeah that's nuts and it's, go- it's really serious, like a lot of environmental issues right now. There is going to be some reckoning because the bees are – I didn't realize how um, unbelievably valuable they are for, for pollinating our crops. Our yeah. pro- and without them, man, we're going to be hurting. <laughs> Dude, oh, man, in addition to everything else. I know, I know. It's crazy, man. It's apocalyptic. Dark days are coming. I tell you, it's, it's, it is. It's like something of – Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. Dude, I was thinking about that this morning. I was thinking about the road. Yeah. I mean, it is just like, it's what it feels like. I mean, especially with uh, so much alienation and people being isolated from each other. Yes. That book nearly 
made me have a mental breakdown. I, I read it in one winter. <laughs> oh, it's a bad time. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was just was thinking about that this morning because I was walking in the dark and um, like the writing style was so claustrophobic. Right. Like you, you felt claustrophobic reading it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you feel tightness in your chest. Yeah, I think that's what he, I mean, he's brilliant. Yeah. That's what he's aiming to do. How's Hermes doing? Doing great. I got a, I got him a buddy. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, I got this little female dog that's a year old, but she's a ball of energy. She's about half as tall as he is, but she's a great little buddy. And they just go, he gets twice as much exercise now. Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah. She's yeah. pushing him. She just pushes him like nobody's business. Mundo candy dog. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Actually, you know, I was thinking about that, um, uh, about the book of the Dun Cow. Yeah. Because um, I, I didn't even know that I said this, but I, I, a student said to me in January, he said over the Christmas break, I read the book of the Dun Cow because he said, if there's any book that pastors should read, it's that book. So I yeah. got it and read it. I was like, I don't even remember saying that. Really? Yeah. But that's it's, it's just so brilliant. I just think that is like the life of a pastor in, in every way, the stresses, the practices, the rhythms, the relationships. Yeah. The, the ache, the ache you have when you know it's healthy for people, but you can't, you're, you're paralyzed to provide it. You, you just you pray, you, you hope, you counsel, but, you, you know, it, it's, it's an inside job. To, and everybody's got to if they want to be healthy, they have to pursue it themselves. You can't do it for anybody else. And, yeah. and that's crushing because you want to, but no doubt. I don't know. I think that book brings out that deep dread of something heavy's coming down. Oh man. That I just, I read it again pretty recently and man, I just cried. It's like the, one of the most oh. beautiful books. And then uh, what's the second one? Book of sorrows. Book of sorrows. Yeah. Oh, just such beautiful books. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think of Hermes. It, it I, I get teary eyed when I think of uh, Mundo Kani dog when he's running with great speed with Wesley Weasel in his mouth. Oh yeah. I just I think of Hermes and how he just <laughs> just goes after stuff. It's just all heart. <laughs> yeah, pure yeah. love, man. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Brilliant. So uh, over the last couple of weeks, and um, I mean, this is just. All summer long, I've been thinking about this because of the, uh, I don't know, the growing awareness. It's not like racial issues have increased. It's just that our awareness of racial injustices uh, has increased. And people are, you know, in social media, people are talking about it. Um, yeah. But I was thinking about how it is that like white evangelical organizational leaders and white evangelical pastors are going to just be completely absent on this one. They right. will not be, they will not talk about it. And it's all because of money. They yeah. just, you, you, it makes them lose their prophetic voice. They can't speak frankly about stuff because they've got to make people happy. And that's part of the job. It's, and it's not even them. It's the structure. Right. Um, I mean, but money corrupts. And um, I talk about this a little bit on, in my book on Paul. And then also in Mark where Jesus warns about um, the deceptiveness of money 
And yeah. it's not even that money like pulls people away from the church, but like the logic of money gets into the church right. and ends up choking out the word. And like you and I have talked a lot about this and I just was thinking about, and I've mentioned this, some, some of the things that you've talked about with regard to what you learned doing bivocational ministry and not being tied to a paycheck coming from the church. Right. Like, In what ways has that a pastor or the pastoral task? Well, one, it, one, I probably don't even know all of the extent of it. Um, but one, one way is that I, I don't, I don't ever want to, I don't know how to put it in a way that doesn't sound like I'm, I'm setting up some sort of um, conditional yeah. thing. I want to be there for the people, whether they can pay me a penny or housing allowance or anything or nothing, you know, yeah. um, my, it, it, it provides me, I think, a freedom that I, I think a lot of pastors that I know, man, I just got an article, by the way, just a, tangentially uh, uh, from a friend on uh, pastors who are having tons of suicidal thoughts right now. Wow. All across the country. Gosh. And uh, yeah, and, and I think somehow it is tied to money because the COVID stuff has got, I mean, people, you know, they're not giving as much. And, and I, I could give, I could give a rats you know what about that but um i think that being bivocational has helped me to be able to just wake up every sunday and and just try to be the best pastor i can but always holding loosely to everything and then i i can walk away i don't have to go oh no i won't be able to provide for myself or my family or whatever i just have a freedom to just be there and and if and if they get tired of me and if if um they're ready for me to move on. They want to get a sexier pastor and get some things hopping. I can just bow out gracefully with love yeah. in my heart and not cling on or get mad or start, you know, acting non-Christian about it. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's funny too, because um, it's, yeah, I see this duality in, in all of us, in myself. So I always, you know, you've heard me say, I, I am a walking bundle of contradictions. Yeah. And I'm not saying that to be clever. I really feel it deep down. I know, I know it to be yep. true. And um, I was just thinking about, you know, that statement Stan Hauerwas made to me a long time ago. Well, no, he, he actually made it on a Duke University interview where he said, what the church needs is interesting atheists. Mm-hmm. But I, he said I, I don't, he didn't think that the church was had had enough courage or enough chutzpah to to do it. Um, and you know I've been thinking about that for over ten years now, just that one little statement. But then um, you know, but I see it. I see it in action with everything from like the poetry of Mary Oliver to my partner Linda, who um, is an amazing person, and she came from about the most dysfunctional family you could imagine. And my own father who came from a very dysfunctional family, they have a lot in common actually. And yet they are the, the and they, they don't, they didn't come from any kind of money or, I mean, uh, white privilege for sure, but poor, I mean, grew yeah. up pretty poor. And, um, and, and those, those two people, especially Linda, cause I, I'm around her a lot has the most uh, generous heart to share and she doesn't have much at all. Yeah. I mean, as far as she, we're both squeaking by. She serves tables. We're both kind of working 
more than one job and we're not, we don't have tenure track jobs because uh, we want to be committed to this place and not do a national search and right. be a later and move off into the wild blue yonder. Um, so we, we, we're thankful for every course they give us for our $3,000 a course. And, um, and you know, you know, all the stuff I've had to do and we both have, but she will, when, when I was living in downtown Louisville, um, she would come in and, and knock on the door. She'd come in by to visit or whatever and say, can, can I borrow $5 from you? And I'd be like, sure. Uh, and it would be to run it back down to a homeless person because she didn't have any cash on her. If she had cash on her. She'd give him pretty much, she'd give him a 20 every time. And I, I resented that. <laughs> I would resent that. And then, then it would come crushing down on me. Why am I being so unchristian? And she, who, and she doesn't profess any, any religion. She's sort of spiritual, but not, I mean, she's not, she doesn't identify as a Christian. Yeah. Yet she acts so much more like a Christian. Mm-hmm than most of the Christians I know mm-hmm. uh, and, and just holds loosely to, to, to money and, and just has this, this heart that is just so sensitive. My, my father's the same way. He will stop. <laughs> he'll be at a gas station and he'll see some old down and out person with a flat tire. And here, here we go. He's gonna, he'll do, he, he's the, he's the good Samaritan and yeah. he'll go and, and pay for the guy to have a car towed. But isn't that interesting? And when, I'm in church culture, I mean, mainstream church culture of people I consider insiders like us, like uh-huh. you and I. Um, there's a stinginess and a greediness and how many arguments we have at church with the leadership about money, money. is yep. just unbelievable. And it, it's caused me at times to just really want to throw in the towel on the whole business. But I, I realize that's not up to me at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, but yeah, just a lot going on with it, man. Yeah, money just gets in and just complicates everything. I mean, I don't know. It just creates, it creates webs of complication that end up being um, enslaving in the worst ways. I mean, it's like, uh, what is it, Jerry Lundegaard? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. I've, I just was the other day running back through my mind in all of the Cohen movies where um, people are going after money. Right. I mean, it's just, it is such a pervasive theme. I mean, even in um, burn after reading, uh, no country. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's such a common theme because it holds out promise. It's like, if I just get my hands on some of that, uh, everything's going to be set, right. I'll have whatever. I mean, we just, we just see such hope in it. And that's the deception of it. And it gets into the church and just, it messes everything up. It really does. And, you know, you were talking with one of the podcasts of, I was listening to you, uh, one of your previous podcasts, you were talking about idolatry in a, in a really helpful way. And you, you, you share some stuff I'd never really even thought about. And one of the, one of the things that if, if we, we get into it, um, I think about when you said it, it destroys the body or bodies, yeah. destroys life. Yeah. Um, I thought, man, um, how that relates to the military industrial complex, oh, totally. which, which is completely money driven, yep. which, which ends up destroying 
us. Yeah. In the, end of the day, we, it's it's the what I call the insanity of of war. Um, we we destroy our own society, and it, there's a there's a there's a madness to it. There's a there's an insanity to it. Um, why would you do the thing? that would destroy you and your family and your kids and your nation. Yeah. And the land and the environment and the land and the environment I mean, it goes on and on and on. But then again, it's, it's money. Yep. It's, it's, we're talking about our modern military industrial complex. I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I just can't, can't totally wrap my head around it, but it all seems to be tied in a bundle money fighting to keep that money yeah. power. Uh, um, yeah, power, uh, creating fictions uh, that make us feel like that's a good thing. Uh, we, we create our own narratives yep. that, that make it, yeah, that's, that's the way it is. Um, and it gets into even kind of a, a, a fatalism that this is just the way the world works. Right. Or a, a sort of psychological essentialism. Yeah, that, which it kind of reveals like the captivity of the imagination. Like we can't imagine yeah. doing it another way. Like that's right. It's not that we're, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with motives or goodness or badness or sincerity. It's like the the options for what we might be able to consider are limited. Right. Like blinders. Total blinders, and it. Yeah, it's it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. Yeah, it's interesting because. Um, in thinking about that passage in Mark four about the deceptiveness of money. Mm -hmm. um, I think that I would have read that previously and just thought like money pulls people away from like being faithfully Christian or something like that. Like it's either, yeah. it's either pursuing God or pursuing money. But I think the deception comes in um, with, with good people, with good motives, yeah. sincere people who begin to imagine like we could actually accomplish God's purposes, or we could do good with money. Like we, mm -hmm. if we have power yeah. or if we have influence or if we have prestige or if we have money, then we can do it. But it, yeah. in Mark, it's like the means are the most right. important thing. And, and it's like the kingdom only goes forward through the cross, through these cross-shaped lives and through weakness and through including the outsider and through saying no to power and prestige and, and money and all that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But it takes, that's where it really, the courage, I mean, to be, as I understand, fully Christian or fully following in the steps of, of Jesus is, uh, takes, like you say, imagination and unbelievable courage, unbelievable abandon to, to just question all that and be ready, be ready to die. I mean, be ready to give, give life yeah. for a cause that's more important than, any single life you know i don't know it's it's a and in this the imagination thing is just what really kills me when you know i've been writing on i'm most excited about a project i'm working on about 100 pages into on on violence and um yeah say a little bit about that i mean what's the what's the whole um sort of course that you're charting what are you hoping to just sort of like how are you tracking on that yeah i it's, it's kind of all over the place because when I started thinking about violence, you know, I'm, I'm former military. So the thing that jumps into our, our, the forefront of our thought when we talk about nonviolence or pacifism, whatever word you want to put on it, um, is, is the military. And now, of course, the police that are becoming these paramilitary forces yeah. 
make us all law enforcement and military has kind of become molded into one these days. Mm-hmm. I thought about how different it was when I grew up and you have a police, like, you know, Barney Fife with a wheel gun, a, a revolver walking around. Yep. And now, man, I mean, they're carrying assault rifles and bulletproof. I mean, they look like, yeah. But then thinking about violence deeply, or I try to anyway, has led me into thinking about all the different ways violence works, uh, racial violence, uh, um, sexual violence, um, violence against women, violence um, on, on so many levels. Yeah. So I'm trying, I'm trying to just kind of root out, you know, what, what are some of these sources of these fictions or these, these narratives? One of, one of the quotes I cling to so much is from a French philosopher named Michel Serres. He says, those who love to fight are unevolved leftovers from a very ancient past, mm. from the dark time when we were armored. Wow. And I, he's, he's, a, he's an amazing writer and, and, uh, and philosopher, but um, I just think, yeah, why, why are we, you know, when we have, you know, I don't want to be all dark about it, but at the same time, it is pretty dark. Um, I mean, Steven Pinker, who's a scholar, just world-class, you know, scholar who uh, at Harvard has written a couple books, Enlightenment Now and um, The Better Angels of Our Nature, these massive tomes on how violence is as a world phenomenon. And he's looking at domestic violence, war, homicide, all this it is going down. It's decreasing, believe it or not. Mm. And, and, and not insignificantly decreasing. Now, with the media, you would never know that. It seems so counterintuitive. Right. Because everything that makes headlines is, you know, violence. Yeah, outrageous, uh, or, yeah. Yeah, outrageous, most of it. So it doesn't feel like that's happening, but when you really think about it, I mean, if we were to have to face a, a pandemic like this 100 years ago, we would be screwed. Oh, yeah. I mean, we... Especially just coming out of a civil war. I mean, we had a civil war here. Yeah, it's right. insane to think about that. Yeah, it's really unreal. And, uh, and now more people dead from this, this virus than... Every war since World War II. Every, every soldier killed since World War II. Now we've got more people dying than this thing. But anyway, it, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, kind of keep balance, maintain balance for me when I think about it. But um, I have to say the center of it, and, and, I, and I'm, you know, casting aspersions on my own gender, but male, it, it, male violence is the problem. That's the elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Why is 98% of the violence in the world male and male-driven? Wow. Um, so, what are some of the things yeah. that you, what, what are some of your hunches? Uh, you know, part of it is, is, is evolutionary. I, 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 I pull from people like Franz DeWall, the primatologist, Jonathan Haidt, um, who's a moral psychologist at, at University of Virginia. And those guys have really given me uh, the the psychological and also the, what I consider the biological hardwiring of for, for hundreds of thousands of years, males have had to defend the tribe. Um, and uh, that means fighting, fighting off and then hunting. And, and um, both of those things take some measure of violence yeah. for us. So there's, there's a sense in which we're, we're really kind of part hardwired uh, as males to, to, to be violent. Yeah. But then you mix in all of the modern um, 
insecurities of the modern world. It's a very fragile world, really, in some ways, because we're, you know, we, we have these ideas that, um, well, to be strong is to be safe right. and right. to be to be able to use to dole out violence is is just something that you again getting into this. This is just the way it is. Yep. Without without thinking really critically and carefully about new ways of uh, it really takes an artist's mind to think about how how can we think of other ways to reduce violence? Do, yeah, we need protection. We don't want to get run over by the heathen hordes. You know, all these all these outlandish things that usually never happen. Um, but like would um, they seem ridiculous? The, the answers that I see, like this will sound ridiculous. OK, so here's one example I have of of, of how in, in the example of war that we would have a national council of mothers, of mothers of their their children who are in the, the armed forces. Mm. And they would be vetted and they would be like, uh, you, you know, you wouldn't just want anybody on there. Right. But they would have the power equivalent to like the Senate and the executive branch. Wow. Uh, because they've got the biggest they've got the biggest stake in the game. Sure. Um, and they've got intuitions and insights that that would balance things and would be like, no, we're not just going to go, you know, nuke a bunch of people yeah. for some oil. These are my kids. Right, that's know? not worth it. But that sounds silly, doesn't it? Oh yeah, right. Council of Mothers. Right, you, sounds that, soft it, and like wimpy or yeah. totally. Um, or even so. What about the technologies of of non lethal forms of restraint? Hmm. And we're we're using some of that. I mean, tasers and pepper spray and stuff like that. It's not ideal, but it's not a bullet between the eyes right. either. Um, the technologies of how to restrain, you know, I got, I got into a martial arts because I wanted a way when I was serving in the military to be able to restrain somebody, but not maybe somebody I'm rescuing. It might be somebody that reacted like in the Stockholm syndrome fashion yeah. there to rescue them, but they're resisting me because they're confused and scared and everything else. So how do I control this person for their own good, but without like, hitting him upside the head with the butt of a assault rifle, right. you know, crack his head open. And that led me into Brazilian, the world of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and my friend Hickson Gracie. And, and um, so there, there were, there, there are gentle ways to deal with situations that are less than ideal. I don't know how to say it, yeah. but, but not having to, it, it's just like one of, one of the problems I see too is, is a fallacious way of thinking, which is just a false dilemma, either or. Right. Either this or that, but no third, fourth, fifth, sixth options. When many times there's lots more options, we just get pitted into thinking, well, it's either this way or that way. So yep. might as well take the easy way. Yeah, drop a bomb or whatever. Yeah, it's an easy way to solve the problem, yep. you know. You know, nuke them. Um, but in this whole, I think a lot of it too, when, when we get getting back to the male part of the equation, is that there's a lot of un insecurity among males. Oh, dude, that thing you sent me on primates was fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So interesting. Yeah, so even the word alpha male has become fictionalized yeah. to mean something that really people like the wall say that's not really, you're not really getting what an alpha male is. Like an alpha male, according to th these are primatologists that I read. I don't pretend to be a scientist, but 
I mean, friends DeWall, if anybody can look up, he's, he's pretty well, well respected. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's, he explains that the alpha and it's, it's a Ted talk, I believe, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Yeah. um, So anybody can check it out if they want, but so alpha males, yes, they are the strongest and best fighters in the troop of uh, talking about primates. However, they're incredibly empathetic. They're, Mm -hmm. they're the most compassionate in the troop. They will take in abandoned orphans. Uh, 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 There's documentation of how the alpha will have compassion for a, uh, um, a monkey that is, is mentally disabled. Mm. There's an example of this, this, he gets this one, uh, I think it's a chimpanzee was, was born, you know, mentally disabled and it was do weird things. It couldn't learn just like a person who doesn't know socially how to act. And it was doing all kinds of like these things that would, would piss off all the other chimpanzees. And the alpha realized that's something wrong with that thing. Mm-hmm. He needs help. And he went over and would protect this little thing. Wow. And then the rest of the troop, through his example, were, were like, yeah, it's a special case. That one gets to do different things than the rest of us. Huh. There's all these really amazing. But back to the alpha, the alpha is really a compassionate. Yeah. Yeah, like a responsible caregiver and like a totally. shepherd and like a, like a right. big, you know, like your favorite uncle. <laughs> Right. And this and this fits with what I'm working on, thinking about some alphas that I have known. And, and I don't I don't pretend to be an alpha or whatever. If we even want to get into that kind of thing. But but for example, like by analogy. Um, so this guy, Hickson Gracie, who he's one of the, the greatest fighters ever to live. There are many of them now because yeah. fighting is a big industry with the UFC and all that. But I mean, you're talking about one of the a, a world class fighter, a, a He'd never been defeated in his professional career. Um, I don't think he's ever defeated otherwise, for that matter, because he had lots of street fights. But as I got to know Hickson, and I stayed at his home multiple times and just count him among my best friends, um, he is the gentlest, kindest hearted, never talks smack. I'd never heard him talk smack. Um, Even when he was getting ready for a big professional fight in Japan, you know, I was talking smack for him on yeah. his behalf. I'm like, oh, you're going to crush them all. You know, he, he would correct me. He would say, no, you know, anything can happen in a fight. You always have to have respect hmm. going in. And, you know, just had this openness. And he'd give you a big old hug. He's okay. And here, here, here's a good one. I was at a seminar in Chicago. There's like over 80 guys at the seminar. And we, I was helping him because I was the only other person there. This was back in the early 90s, and hardly anybody knew what Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was, and I, I'd already been training with him for a couple of years. So I was there helping him, you know, explaining moves and, you know, just trying to – I was the only other person there that knew any of this. Well, he's being swamped by people wanting his autograph, and he's, he's already pretty famous in the martial arts world. Um, and there was a guy who was born without any arms who, who was attending this thing. Huh. And he was kind of not the best looking guy. He did, he, he kind of slunk off in the corner and was, you could tell he was a little embarrassed yeah. and, and he, he just didn't fit in. And what's he going to do? You know, my guy's got no arms. Yeah. I mean, nothing, not even nothing. And so on the lunch break, when everybody's lined up to talk to puff their chest out and talk, meet Hickson, 
Hickson says, hey, Steve, why don't you answer some questions here? He just slipped away and went over and spent an hour with this guy. Gave him basically an hour private lesson, trying to teach him how to use his feet, keep distance to protect himself. I mean, I I wanted to cry. Like, holy cow. But it's that kind of thing where it's the betas that are the real big talkers. Yeah. And the ones who use bully tactics most of the time. And let me tell you. Most of the world is betas from what yeah. I see. And I, I include myself in that. Uh, I've, I only know it because I've been around some real alphas yeah. um, and, um, some, and, and really world-class people. Yeah. So it's, there's a deep well of all of it going on. Yeah, so alpha males don't have to prove anything. They're sort of free to kind of open up their hearts, build community, yeah. put their arms around people. But it's beta males that are like striving, uh, yes. agitating uh, competitive with each other uh, yeah. will take any opportunity to kick somebody who's already down in order to lift themselves right. up. All the bully stuff. Yeah. Their, their, their goal is to create chaos in the troop Yeah, where the alpha cares nothing about harmony, but harmony in the troop. Yeah. Keeping people satisfied, keeping people things fair. Justice is another one that dewalls all over. So, yeah, so that's that's a part of the puzzle of, of all of all of the violence. The other thing, too, is just the uh, <laughs> um, another another author that I really love is a guy named Yuval Noah Harari. Um, he's an Israeli historian who's written some pretty famous books. Most if you're well read, you probably already have read it or know of it. Um, he wrote a book called Sapiens and then the second one was called Homo Deus. Uh, which is a sequel, but yeah, he says never uh, on talking about war. Uh, Harari says never underestimate human stupidity. <laughs> and it's really, it is really the stupidity of it. That it's starting to oh, it's make me, um, well, sad, but want to write about it. For example, we have spent seven, over $7 trillion in, in just Iraq and Afghanistan in the last 19 years yeah. and uh i i cannot even wrap my head around how big a trillion is oh, it's yeah. a thousand billions it's outrageous i had to google it <laughs> <laughs> how big this is i mean i can't even wrap my head around a billion but all of that money could you imagine that put into infrastructure yeah. to schools social programs health care and yeah, green same, spaces I, and urban centers Right. All this stuff. And then, and then at the same time, what have we done in the Middle East? How much better is it now? Yeah. Oh, oh it's yeah. so much better, right? Yeah, there's more chaos. <laughs> I, don't, I don't mean to be... More enemies. Yeah. It, it's just, you, I just I shake my head. But, um, and, and not only that, but now we have a huge suicide problem among veterans. We have a homelessness problem among veterans. We have PTSD problems and drug dependency problems among veterans. Who is winning here? Yeah. Like, what? What are we doing? Um, we're destroying ourselves. And we get back to that idolatry idea. Yeah. We will destroy it. It will consume itself. It, it almost becomes, it is sort of biblical. Yeah. This is what I can't, I can't quite wrap my head around the whole thing. But one of the scholars who's been most influential in my life, Mark C. Taylor, talks about the Dionysian Jesus. Hmm. The death provides life and life provides death. Hmm. And the thing can destroy it. The thing will destroy itself. Oh, totally. 
uh, it, it's just, it's really fascinating, but anyhow. Yeah. Well, that's a, um, an interesting way of thinking about wrath, uh, in Romans, but I think, I think this is going on in many places in the new Testament. There's, there are places where wrath is spoken about and it's just wrath by itself. And it's funny in the Greek text, but sometimes English translations put in God's wrath in there because it's like, well, self-evidently that's gotta be God's wrath. But, right. but there's a sense in which wrath is this, is this um, dynamic that is self-consumptive. It's like this, right. because of humanity's folly, wrath has been let loose on creation, and it's just tearing everything up. It's consuming everything. And it's like, you know, um, if you want to retaliate against your neighbor, you're going to step into wrath, and it's going to consume you is more of the idea that's going on in Romans. Yeah. It's not like if you retaliate against your neighbor, God's wrath will come on you, but you're, right. you're getting in the way of wrath. I mean, stay out of it, get out of that. I mean, it's going to mow yeah. you down. See, I see that. I see that exactly same thing with, with, when Jesus is going through Samaria, he's headed toward Jerusalem. You know, I think it's in Luke. It's, it's right in the middle of Luke. Uh, and the people are like, don't you, haven't you heard about the blood that, Pilate mingled with the sacrifices, and apparently, reading N.T. Wright, he was talking about there was this massacre up on the Temple Mount where Pontius Pilate, or yeah, Pontius Pilate, I think was yeah, uh, unleashed some some Roman soldiers on these demonstrators and just hacked them to pieces up up on the temple area, and their blood of the people mixed with the sacrifices that were actually being offered at the time. Anyhow. And then Jesus tells this kind of enigmatic thing like, well, you know, did you hear about the tower that fell on those people? Unless you repent. And now when I hear repent, I don't hear, oh, be sorry about your sins. Right. <laughs> Personal list of sins. I hear you better turn around and start loving your neighbor. Yes. Or the powers that be, you, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yep. And that is what I understand him to be saying. He's like, the Romans are going to come in here and do it again. If you keep up this violence, yeah. this this insane, and, and it is a form of idolatry. I just think of uh, it's all kind of mixed in a swirl because there's that verse, greed is idolatry. Yeah, I mean, at the bottom bottom line, um, whatever we want to, you know, there's lots of forms of it, but yeah, um, but it's going to destroy. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, I mean, basically, idolatries are constructed in order to guarantee outcomes. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is like, uh, I mean, all the the fertility cults, right? You know, I mean, this is why Baal, you know, to be a Baal worshiper was really appealing because you're going to guarantee crops yeah. and you got to eat right. and you want that, you know. Right. But I mean, to have this open ended kind of way of life where you have no guarantees from the divine except for his promises, I mean, can we really trust that? It's better to have something you could see that's going to guarantee fertility uh, and yeah. fruitfulness, but. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just think we always build our idolatries from our, our best motives and from what we imagine will guarantee uh, that we get what we want. And right. I mean, that's why we want money. That's why we want power. So we can make sure things turn out the way that we, they, we want them to for our prestige and for our name or whatever. Right. In the name of security. We think it's a form of security, but it's the most fragile thing ever. Oh, totally. it, it really... It doesn't give us any ultimate security. Yeah, that's the seduction of it, and ultimately right. it's empty. Man, what did you think of uh, Dumay's book? Oh, loved it. I actually—you're the one that I turned me on to it. 
Did I? Was that me? Yeah, you huh. texted me a picture of it. I went up right yeah. out and bought it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was writing a review uh, for the Fourth R, which is a West R publication. So I wrote a very favorable review. Uh, I just think it was um, it was brilliant in that it put together uh, even a lot of what we were talking about here with violence and male, yeah, <laughs> male aggression and all this. Um, yeah, she just tied together a lot of what you and I have witnessed and talked about over the many couple decades we've known each other. And, um, but did it in a way that you're, you're kind of like, ah, wow. And got into the branding and the media, um, the media aspect of it, the, the branding aspects of it from, you know, that's what, that's one thing that uh, Mark Taylor says is the, that, that conservatives have way better, have done a way better job than uh, than than liberals in in Protestant, and he's talking within Protestantism. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like in what way? What do you mean? Uh, the, the, he, here's here's what I'm thinking. The most media savvy Protestants are conservatives rather than liberals. Oh, that's definitely the case. Uh, yeah, definitely the case, and and so yeah, and so it, 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 when they're operating within a system that is already branding and marketing. It's just, it's like you were saying on one of your podcasts, like the, the, um, the system's all set up. All you got to do is just plug it in the capitalistic, you know, mode. And and then you can take off and it'll take a life of its own and it'll become powerful on some level. But, uh, but yeah, but what I, one of the things she, you know, she just ties it all together and just shows you the narratives and, and the different groups, including the women that are pro. Totally. That was so interesting. I thought, I thought that was the, one of the most interesting parts. Um, you know, Schlafly and, and Morgan, uh, Maribel Morgan. Um, and I think that that's, that's a whole other fascinating thing. But coming back to the men, like I, in, my, in the review I wrote, I, I said, I have been asked, and this is, this is so funny. You know, you, you, you've known some of this, but I, get, I still get invitations just because I was a former Navy SEAL. So everybody thinks, oh, rock star, you know, this is this is a cool factor or whatever because of all the popularity with, with the military and with the SEALs. And I'll be asked by church groups to come to these mega churches, men's churches. conferences. It's unreal. Yeah. Churches of all places to talk about. I don't know what I don't know what they want me to talk about, but I don't know. I don't have any idea what like you know com- elite commando tactics <laughs> which i reject now i mean i'm you know you know my stance now. I'm, like, I'm totally against it all but what does that have to do with the thing i understand as a as palestinian peasant yeah and faith healer it's <laughs> trying to change the world yeah that was killed uh, by the empire yeah with exactly. all its armies I had it. There was a church in Oklahoma. They wanted me. I kid you not. You can't make this up. They wanted me to come and ha- and teach their men how to shoot oh, weapons. Goodness. Yeah. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so anyway, I see where a lot. But and again, I do think it's it's part of a very fragile male ego, and and in the sense that we are losing, and we, we we're not losing. We're, if you take a look around, white power is large and in charge, yeah. right? White male power, particularly. But there's a sense that 
you know, I think a cognitive dissonance that they know, we all know, I mean, if, unless we're just deluded, which some people are probably, but a woman in today's world can go farther than a man uh, or as far as a man once could, didn't always, wasn't always that way, but now she can be successful and at whatever. And it's like, where do we fit in anymore? Right. And I think it's a throwback to, well, our value used to come when we were hunter and gatherers from kicking a lot of butt and uh, keeping the tribe impregnated. (laughs) So we kind of lost that. And instead, there's this this insecurity that comes up that we want to be tough or something again, as if that's a... I don't know. I don't know what that is, but yeah, as if that's the solution. So I mean, I've, you know, the the insecurity is felt, the emptiness inside is felt, and we feel right. like that's got to be overcome through violence or through domination in some way or through winning. Uh, right. Not realizing that it's I don't know that it's meant to be overcome, but it's it's sort of like a wound that's meant to be healed through openness and partnerships and mutuality and right. I don't know uh, authenticity or. I don't know. Friendships. There are other yes. ways of dealing with it. Totally. And here's, here's exactly what I'm thinking. And, and here's another one of those creative things that I don't think we think about. Getting back to the vast majority of the violence in the world being male, or at least connected with males, we guys typically, and then this is a broad, I'm painting with a little bit of a broad brush, but I think you know what I'm, where I'm going with uh-huh. this. We, our society, especially in North America, red-blooded male society I'm talking about, men are not supposed to cry. Yeah. We are not supposed to cry. That's it's a shameful thing. It's just like, oh, I saw my dad crying. It was a very, very powerful thing. I remember it when I was like seven years old. The yeah. first time I saw my dad, he was worried because we'd just been in a tornado. Wow. And he was crying out of joy that we were alive. And I thought, dad's not supposed to cry. What's happening? Yeah. whole world's falling totally. apart. And, you know, I wonder if because men far more suppress and don't cry and don't let it out, this is a natural gift. Crying is just as much a gift as laughter, yeah. I think, because it, it cleanses us. It, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to say it, but um, yeah, release and relief somehow. Yeah, release, release of pressure. Women cry more than men, I think. Uh, I'm not, I haven't done the quantitative analysis, but I have a, I have a feeling women cry more than men do. And I just wonder if that's not somehow connected to that violence. And it, like I say, it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. But there's so many dynamics that are cultural that create us, uh, that, that create these, these narratives, these fictions. Yeah. That... Yeah, exactly. I was about to say they're, they're, yeah. they're these sort of overarching narratives and I need to sort of fit myself into that and try to be a character that is, like a successful character, a positive character within that narrative. And it's handed on to me. It's not like I get to choose it. So my imagination is captive as far as like what the options are for my behavior. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so many, yeah, there's there's so many ways in which, especially for uh, white conservative Christians in America, um, sort of uh, ways of being male, ways of being female, are so mm-hmm. structured and um, sort of prefabricated. And right. I mean, certain personality types that don't fit the molds, you know, you just got to suck it up or you got to sort of, I don't know, suppress your true impulses and try to fit in. 
Right. But it's just, I don't know. Like you can only do that for so long before you just lose it. Something pops. Yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. going to break somewhere. You know, it's, it's, it's funny because this, this is another aspect of the modern world. I was, you know, I teach, uh, I teach some classics at, at University of Louisville, and uh, we, I was rereading the Odyssey. Um, and in the ancient world, like there's a, there's a feast among the Phaeacian peoples where Odysseus stopped along his journey home. And they said, tell us, oh, you are the hero. You're Odysseus, one of these great heroes who fought in the Trojan War. And it was at a dinner banquet, and they they they, they engaged him to tell of the tell of the war, mm. tell us the story of the war, and he just breaks down and starts bawling wow. because of all the loss of his close brothers and the horror of it all. Yeah. I'm like, this is Odysseus, man. You're not supposed to be crying, yeah. but no, I mean, this is such a modern, I don't know, stoic. Uh, it's not even stoic. It's just a modern notion. But anyhow, yeah, it's. Uh... I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely not stoic, but it's right. like um, I, I don't know. It I don't know if it's a John Wayne kind of thing. I don't know yeah. because I I don't know to what extent these stereotypes existed like in the late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. Yeah, it's hard, I, I don't know. I don't know. I just haven't done the the reading or the work. Man, you know, it's so yeah. interesting. Uh, Maddie read the book, and she texted me about how. Um, she said she was so struck by all of the, the projection that is hmm. going on in the book. Like men, I mean, basically people in power projecting onto subjugated, you know, uh, whoever is subjugated, all kinds of motivations and all kinds of like uh, basically projecting all their fears onto whoever is subjugated. Like yeah. men power seeking onto women, conservative yeah. Christians project onto LGBTQ plus people like they're all right. gay activists or something like that. And they want to, <laughs> yeah. they want to like ruin our families. I mean, it's right. so twisted. Right. I, I, that's part of like that madness of, of power. It's like, right. if you are in a place of power, it's so fearful. Like you don't know what burden you take on. Right. And you end up sort of demonizing the other and not whoever the other is or others, immigrants, foreigners, black people, I mean, whoever, like we don't, right. We, we cut ourselves off from the gifts that we could be receiving from them. And we twist ourselves so badly. We, we pervert ourselves. Right. That's no, right on. Worst burden. What, uh, what was this? What, what book are you reading that you sent me that, um, that page the other day about crucifixion? <clears throat> oh, that was from uh, Mark C. Taylor. It, it's called Erring, a Postmodern A Theology. Huh. Um, it's really, really interesting, man, and it is dense. I'm having to go. <laughs> I read two pages, and it, I'm, I'm like my brain smoking. But it's really, really good. I, it's one of his earlier works. He wrote it in the '80s, and huh. um, man, that guy just cranked out three, three hundred page University of Chicago Press books in 2020. Dude, that is insane. <laughs> I don't know how people do it. I give up, man. I, I'm I telling you. I've got like a book or two in me every 10 years. That's it. <laughs> I had a book or two in me in a lifetime. <laughs> it's anyway. Yeah. It's just, I just laugh at it. What, you know, one other thing I wanted to mention too, about the curiosity of that. This, I don't know where this fits in with what, with our discussion, but there's a, do you know, Phil Zuckerman? Uh, the name sounds familiar. He's into secular studies, living the secular okay, life. No, I don't know. Okay, yeah. Well, he has this book called Living the Secular Life. 
and what I cannot wrap my head around, this would be a question for every confessing Christian to just think about. And, and he, he's a sociologist. He did a lot of, a lot of research. Um, he says the most, I'm, I'm reading out of this book here, uh, the most interesting finding of this impressive meta-analysis was that strongly religious Americans tend to be the most racist, moderately religious Americans tend to be less racist, and the group found to be the least racist of all are secular Americans. He goes on to say, perhaps this helps explain why secular white people were more likely than religious white people to support the civil rights movement, and why secular white South Africans were more likely to be against apartheid than religious white South Africans. What is up with this? Why is it that people with no faith or agnostic or secular, whatever you want to call it, are more kind-hearted? They have less crime, like in Europe. Yeah. Uh, more community-oriented. What's up? <laughs> yeah, there is something. Uh, I mean, Willie Jennings talks about this in um, Christian Imagination about how a – I don't even think he's talking about the West, but for sure the West – that Christian theology was enfolded within the colonial project. And so yeah. basically Christian theology is laced with racism, xenophobia, and of course, whiteness, because it's the you know, white European, white Europeans are the ones who formulated theology for the world and also subjugated um, non-white peoples. So yeah. It's, it's, I, the full flowering of that is in America, man. It's, it's oh, astonishing. Yeah. And especially with uh, evangelicalism, white evangelicalism, which the, basically the same thing in the last hundred years. Um, I mean, it was intentionally white. So yeah. that, um, I mean, black historic, black, the historic black church and historic black churches in America were shut out. So it's like, I, I don't know, man. I, there's got to be some kind of a reckoning. I don't know if it's coming, but it is yeah. astounding. And that, I mean, all I can say is that's something that the church has to face up to. It's not, and, and that's, by the way, that's not um, like some one-off scholar making that observation in mm -hmm. Divided by Faith, Christian Smith, and whatever, uh, Michael Emerson. I mm -hmm. mean, they did extensive research and polling. They found the exact same thing. Really, conservative Protestants, by and large, um, they say are the biggest obstacle to racial progress. Um, oh, actually, I'm reading another book right now. Sarah Posner. This is one of the most well-researched books I've ever read. It's called Unholy. Unholy. I've got. It. I'm reading it. Oh, too. That's, that's incredible. A, oh man, she. Yeah, she's tying together a lot of. Yeah, but like white conservative Christians in America see um, uh, growing civil rights ever since the 60s, for sure, as a loss for them. Like, <laughs> like if black people get rights or if um, gay lesbian people get rights or like if other people right. have rights guaranteed to them, the way, right. that, the way that that's been interpreted for uh, white evangelical Christians by white evangelical leaders is they're coming after you or they're taking away your rights. That's insane. Unbelievable. Yeah. But that, that's how the imagination works. There was yeah. a fascinating article in the New York Times uh, on, in su on the Sunday, in the Sunday Times uh, a week and a half ago, um, where this journalist just spent, I don't know, a couple months in this town in Iowa. I think it's, anyway, it's the town in Iowa where there's uh, Dort College with all these uh -huh. conservative Christians. 
And that's exactly the kinds of things that they were saying, that um, you know, they, they support the current president because he's, gonna, he's fighting for our cause and he's, you know, we're having all of our rights taken away. We had all of our rights taken away under Obama and he's fighting <laughs> for our rights. Like, well, who's taking away your rights? What are you talking right. about? But that's yeah. how their imaginations have been fostered. A zero-sum game mentality. That's exactly it. Which is so yeah, ironic yeah. because the Christian imagination is supposed to work in such a way that, you know, when there's more, to, there's more than enough to go around. I mean, that's what the feeding miracles yeah. are all about. There's more, there's more than we need. We can share. We can live with open hands. It's no big deal. Yeah. So many parables speak to that. Like, love is a renewable resource. Ugh. It's not a non-renewable resource. That's right. To put it in economic terms. but Yeah, like, there's no need to, like, protect ours and make sure that we're not going to lose out. And that's just simply not a Christian impulse. Yeah, I love that little, it's a little parable, I think, where Jesus says to those who have, more will be given, and to those who don't have, who, who don't have even what they have will be taken away, which yeah. is kind of a paradox, because if they don't have anything, how could it be taken away? But it's, I think that's getting into that whole, look, share the wealth, uh, share the love for, yeah, there's nobody, there's no losers in Jesus's kingdom. That's right. Everybody is welcomed. Everybody gets a seat at the table. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's a kingdom called plenty. There's more than enough. In fact, when all, when everybody's full, there are basketfuls left over. I mean, that's what right. that's what these you know these uh, these stories are all about. They're meant to shape our imaginations. Of course, historically, evangelicals have been focused on like proving that they happened or something like that instead of actually right. living the kinds of lives that these tales commend. Totally, it's ridiculous. Dude, this thing's going to run out. I think we've only got an hour before it cuts off. Man, thank you so much oh, for taking the time, brother. Man, always. And thanks for having me, man. I love your podcast and uh, great to be included. That's cool. Well, I'm, I'm just shocked that anybody would listen to it. But <laughs> Not at all, man. All right, dude. I love you. We'll talk soon. All right, brother. Well, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Steve and I talked for an hour and it flew by, but that's the case every time we talk. Well, that's it. Episode seven is in the bag. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm going to go sit out on the patio because it's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away.